Pastors Larry and Tiz Huck welcome you to this weekly Torah study from New Beginnings Church in Bedford, Texas, taught by Pastor Scott Sigmund. We pray this message will help you better understand how God's Old Testament wisdom and New Testament revelation are meant to jointly fit together. We've been studying together uh, the weekly parasha, the weekly Torah portion, uh, for probably 15 years or more, dating back to the Irving Church when I took that over, probably, I guess, in uh, 2006 or seven or eight, I, I lost count. But today we're uh, in the, uh, we begin an exploration into the book of Leviticus. It's not a root canal. There's actually wisdom and revelation that God has, divine principles that God has embedded in every book of the Bible that point us to the goodness of God, that point us to the work of the Messiah. And so we are in Leviticus 1 through 5 today, Torah study number 24 on the calendar, uh, and uh, this word Leviticus is kind of a Greek-Latin word uh, that means pertaining to the Levites. Uh, in reality, uh, through Christ, you and I are now kings and priests. So we're part of a priesthood, a royal priesthood, a holy nation that is supposed to represent Christ here on the earth. Ambassadors of the Lord. How many ambassadors do we have in here? Amen. Royalty. And Brother Ty, you know a little bit about ambassadorship. Amen. Being in the diplomatic corps, serving our government for how many years had you served? 24 years. So uh, in Leviticus and in the Torah, there's approximately a hundred, maybe a few more, of the 613 commandments pertain to the sacrifices uh, and to temple service. Uh, And so there's a a lot that God embeds in the Torah. Uh, We thought as Christians that was all kind of, we don't need to know anything Uh, But how many of you know the full gospel begins in Genesis? You know, if all you have is Matthew through Revelation, hallelujah! It might be on the hair, by the hair of your
important to understand that what we're studying in the Torah and in Leviticus, these sacrifices, these are God-given things. It wasn't really got together. Scripture, all Scripture beginning in Genesis. Actually, when he wrote this, there was no New Testament Scripture. There was just Torah, the Law and the Prophets. But he says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is valuable for teaching the truth, convicting of sin, correcting faults, and training in right living. Now, this isn't going to be a lesson on all your faults (laughs) and how they need to be corrected. That's between you and the Holy Spirit. I'm going to preach some of the gospel pertaining to that. And uh, if, if the shoe fits... So, for people that grew up like I grew up when I got saved in 1984... Uh, uh, you know, I would, I didn't learn. Yeah. Hello, Torah study at New Beginnings. When I grew up, uh, 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 I was a New Testament Christian. Amen. Nothing wrong with that. But uh, as uh, we got partnered up with Pastor and Tiz, and Pastor began to research the Jewish roots, and uh, he discovered that Christianity is Jewish. Our boss is a Jewish carpenter. And much more, a Jewish rabbi. Our high priest, our Savior, our Redeemer. We'll probably get to heaven and realize... They're all talking Hebrew in heaven. Yeah. The official language of heaven. But Jesus uh, taught us in Matthew 5, in the great Sermon on the Mount, 
uh, verse 17, don't think that I have come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. So let's kind of get that misunderstanding out of the way. He goes on to say, you know, don't let even the smallest jot or tittle be misrepresented. Whoever doesn't do the least of these will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. And on and on and on. So uh, he came to heighten our understanding, increase our knowledge of the Torah, not to end it. Amen? In fact, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, there's six different teachings that he does, the Lord does, on the Sermon on the Mount that actually takes the laws of Moses and puts even a higher level of commitment on it. If you even ponder these things in your heart, you're in need of repentance and forgiveness. So it all speaks to the seriousness of sin. Sin is serious business. You know, one of the scriptures Christian theologians use to diminish the Old Testament is in Hebrews 8-7. And in Hebrews 8-7, most of the translations say, if that first covenant had been faultless, then there wouldn't have been a need for the second. And so what the translators had done is they made this scripture and so many others sound like it's the Torah that's at fault. If this first covenant had been done right, then we wouldn't have needed the second covenant. As if somehow God made a mistake with the Torah, the Mount Sinai experience was just a big failure, and so let's send Jesus to fix it. That's not what Hebrews 8-7 is talking about. In fact, the fault is not with the covenant, but the people who didn't remain faithful to the covenant, as verse 8 says. Hebrews 8-8. But when God found fault with the people... He didn't say, oh my gosh, what have I done? I've given them a first covenant, an old covenant. It's... It's totally flawed and faulty. Let's get a new one out there. No, the fault was not with the covenant. The fault was with the people. Okay. So he says in verse 8, The day is coming when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. And in fact, it's that phrase, uh, that concept of making a new covenant that pops up all throughout the Old Testament, especially with uh, the prophets. That uh, there would come a time when God would give a new covenant and the laws of God, the Torah of God, would would come into a new location into the hearts of men. And this happened when the Messiah came. He baptized His people with the Holy Ghost and fire. And this is what gave them the spiritual power to be faithful. To keep the laws of God and keep the covenants of God. There's a before and after difference. 
The difference was where the covenant would be housed. It's not a different covenant. The difference is, where is it going to be housed? In the Old Testament, it was housed in the Holy of Holies, in the Ark of the Covenant, on tablets of stone in the Ten Commandments. In the tabernacle and then later in the temple. But who is the temple now? Know ye not that you are the temple of God. So God saying the new covenant is now going to be housed in a... It's not a whole bunch of new things. It's the Torah. Jesus is the living Torah, baptizing His people with the Holy Ghost and fire so that we can have the covenant embedded into a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. So one of the best kept secrets about the New Testament is what Paul means when he writes about the law. Have you ever talked to anybody? Maybe you did it. I know I did it. When, when uh, 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 growing up without any revelation about the wisdom of God in the Old Testament, we're not under the law. Anybody ever tell you that? We're not under the law. We don't have to do the works of the law. Anybody ever say that to you? How many have heard that in some, some phrase or another? What we don't understand with those types of phrases is what they mean in the context in which they were said. Paul said these things in a context. And we've missed the context because of man's traditions. So Paul, writing about the law, is it's not an attack against God's laws in the Torah. It's actually, he is arguing against man-made legalism. Not against God's commandments. Why would, why would Paul argue against the Ten Commandments? Churches now are arguing against the Ten Commandments. It's like, you're agreeing with secular, pagan, atheistic humans that, that don't want the Ten Commandments anywhere in our society. Why are you agreeing with them? It's ludicrous. Paul was arguing against converting the Word of God or distorting the Word of God into legalism. Legalism is pretending to be spiritual, appearing to be religious. I'm in church. What more do you want? I came to church one time last month. What more do you expect? And what's lacking, although we're going through the motions, is we're lacking a sincere repentance in our hearts. We're not living repentance in our lives day in and day out. Godly ethics are missing in day-to-day life. I went to church for an hour. That pretty much sums up my week with the Lord. Don't expect me to do anything else. That doesn't show any transformation in a person. We're new creations. There's new creation realities out there. 
that we need to discover it and we need to begin to apply in our lives divine principles and guidelines throughout the Bible that we need to embrace and absorb. Yeah. That's Christianity. That's being Christ-like. Yeah. We can't reduce, and legalism reduces faith to a religious tradition. And going through the motions without producing any fruit of the Spirit. So Paul, like Jesus, is challenging the religious system, the religious leaders. And they and all the other apostles were trying to end this concept, this idea of living life legalistically. It wasn't ending the laws of God. We're not under the law. No, we're not under legalism, man-made traditions, and we're not uh, under a system that supports people living like, all I have to do is take a lamb to the tabernacle, drop it off, and then go my own way and live any way I want to live. So Christians accuse the Old Testament and Judaism and the Jews of being legalistic, and yet... uh, We need to do as Michael Jackson once sang. What about that man in the mirror? (laughs) Go with me to Galatians 4. 4. This is from the complete Jewish Bible. And it says, When the appointed time arrived, God sent forth His Son. He was born from a woman, born into a culture in which legalistic perversion of the Torah was the norm. That was the context. And the complete Jewish Bible gets us back to a better understanding. What's going on in biblical times? There was a culture in which legalistic perversion of the Torah was the norm. So that He, God sent forth His Son, so that He, Jesus, might redeem those in subjection to this legalism and thus enable us to be made sons of God. So the redemption that happened when the Lord came the first time uh, wasn't just salvation in the sense of my sins are forgiven. Hallelujah! Our sins are forgiven. Say amen. It helps to confess them and be sorry for them and have a sincere desire to improve. It may take 70 times 7 to work yourself through some of those issues, but however long it takes, don't give up. Never give up. Don't stop believing. Don't stop. But another aspect of redemption was Jesus came to set the Word of God free from legalism. Amen? A legalistic understanding. It had been nullified by religious tradition. Mechanical rule keeping. I kept the rules! (laughs) 
okay, yeah, that's, I mean, if that's where you start, we can work with that. But Jesus didn't abolish the Torah or all the moral and ethical aspects of God's laws. They're divine principles, the wisdom of God. What really took place was the upgrading of the sacrificial system. That's what changed. God replaced the temporary system of offering lambs and bulls and goats with a once and for all sacrifice provided through Yeshua's death and resurrection. Which means that everything we see in Torah, in Leviticus, is a shadow of good things to come. The shadow is part of the good thing. Amen? And so let me just digress a bit more on this teaching of legalism and how it took a huge turn after the resurrection. The book of Galatians is a great example. I spent a big chunk of yesterday uh, going through the book of Galatians and all the commentaries. And here's some of it in just a nutshell. Uh, But throughout the book of Galatians, we were told by theologians that what Paul was teaching is that the law is now abolished. Attention please! The law and the Torah are now abolished! And it's been abolished because Christ has come and Christ ends the law. So now as believers, the myth goes, we're no longer under the law. We no longer have to do the works of the law. And so, this is a big question that's out there. Uh, Why are you going to that church that studies Jewish roots? We're not under the law! And so, these types of phrases and doctrines that Christians use have been misunderstood. What we should have understood in the proper context uh, is that Paul means that Gentiles are no longer under the laws of conversion to Judaism. That was the original context. Because you had all these factions and groups that were trying to decide once the Gentile revival broke out that's described in the book of Acts, what are we going to do with all these Gentiles coming in? And one group said they have to go through a complete conversion process just like I did, including circumcision. Okay, where does that line form? And so in the original context, Paul saying, Acts 15, book of James is saying, Gentiles are no longer under the laws of conversion. You don't have to become Jewish Gentiles and go through all what the Jewish proselytites would have gone through this lengthy conversion process. You don't have to become Jewish to have faith in Yeshua. But as time went on, Christianity eventually expanded this context of you're not under the laws of conversion to you're not under the laws of anything. 
Yeah. Mission creep. So it comes down to terminology. It comes down to historical context. When Paul was writing to Gentile Galatians and taught about no longer being under the law, he meant that Gentiles would no longer have to follow the laws of conversion. Especially the laws of circumcision. Grown men said amen. Back then... (laughs) We're not having baptism today. We're having circumcision today. That'll complete the process of salvation in your life. And there were other laws that explicitly dealt with being Jewish. That the Gentiles would no longer have to abide by to become part of the fellowship of faith. This is what not under the law is talking about in its original context. So you could sum it up with a a question like this. Can an uncircumcised Gentile be saved by faith? Or does he have to follow the laws, the works of circumcision, and become, as it were, Jewish to complete the salvation process? Survey says, no, (laughs) no, of course. But here's the rub. The reverse is also true. A Jew doesn't need to stop being Jewish to complete the salvation process. And this is what Acts 15 is all about. And Pastor James, the half-brother of Jesus, what, what does he know? He concluded after everyone had their say, all the different opinions were thrown out there on the table, and what he decides in Acts 15 is Gentiles don't need to go through the laws of conversion to be saved. They'll do this by faith. So when Paul is saying that a person cannot be justified by the works of the law, You New Beginnings people are involved in the works of the law. And he does that. Paul talks about that in Galatians 2.15. But in context, he's talking about the laws of conversion, the laws of circumcision, the laws that pertain to Jews specifically, not Gentiles. It speaks to Conversion laws, not to God's laws in the Torah, those moral and ethical laws. This is why it confuses Christians when you get into the book of James and James begins to teach things like faith without works is dead. I thought it's not by work lest any man should boast. Talking about two different things. James said that you're not justified by faith alone. Even the devils believe. But you need works. So what is he referring to? He's referring to works of a different matter. Okay? Works that mean obedience to the commands of God. 
If you love me, keep my commandments, Jesus said. Those are the works that come for obedience sake. What Paul was talking about when he's talking about works was exclusively meant to mean laws of conversion at the altar call. Wouldn't it be crazy if we were all having an altar call on Sunday morning and all the men follow me? Where are we going? Circumcision. Uh, I, I, I think I'll be a Baha'i. <laughs> so James is saying, once you have faith in God, you need to obey God. And he put out a rule book. You don't keep the rules to be a Christian. You keep the rules to be a better Christian. <laughs> are we okay? This is kind of the background of why are we studying the book of Root Canal? I mean the book of Leviticus. So... Delving into this uh, in Leviticus, into the sacrificial system, uh, it's important to realize that all the offerings that God talks about in Leviticus really do demonstrate that He has an unending commitment to you and me. Amen? He wants to connect us to His covenant promises, His covenant blessing. He knows that sin comes to block the blessing of God, and He has a remedy for sin. He chose that remedy to be the blood of a lamb, and other things as well. Uh, and, and actually, this whole idea of sacrificial a sacrificial system starts in Genesis. If you go way back to Genesis, God clothed Adam and Eve with animal skins. They, those, those lambs just didn't uh, zip off their... <laughs> Here, here's, here's some clothes and here's a rug too. No. That was the first instance of God ordaining a substitutionary sacrifice to atone for sin. Adam and Eve, you blew it. So God just didn't send them to hell. Okay, you blew it. Make a new Adam and Eve. You First Adam and Eve, you go to hell for all of eternity and burn, burn, burn. No. Let's take a substitutionary, an innocent lamb, the blood of that lamb will release forgiveness, redemption, atonement, and we'll get up and do it again. And as I said earlier, you might, it might take 70 times, 7 times. Infinity! Hopefully not that long. <laughs> I can tell you this, that one of the benefits of the new covenant is that we don't have to sacrifice a lamb anymore. Why do we have a better covenant? Well, one obvious reason is you don't have to go get a lamb from uh, that's spotless and, uh, and, innocent and take it to a temple or tabernacle, walk up the ramp with the priest, he hands you the knife, you slaughter the lamb, the blood is shed, and now your sins are forgiven. 
if we still did that, <laughs> probably be a lot less sin or a lot fewer Christians. So the Lord set it up so that an innocent animal would be accepted as a substitute. A sacrifice for the horrendous penalty of sin. Instead of a sinner being punished, God allowed an innocent lamb to pay the price. That, my friends, is called amazing grace. There's nothing we could have done to set up that system. That's God's system. He set it up originally, and then uh, all of that was to point the whole world towards a coming prophecy when a Messiah would come, and He would be the Lamb of God, and once and for all would take away the sin of the world. Amen. And the prophets and the apostles always declared that. Right? In the new covenant through Jesus, forgiveness is received by faith. We have faith that His sacrifice accomplished what God said it accomplished. It broke the power of the devil. It broke the power of sin. It broke the power of sickness. It broke the power of poverty. It broke the power of every evil work. And those of us that walk by faith in that and not by sight, we're going to enter in to the power and promises of God like never before. That's not religion. Right? That's not religion. That's relationship. That's an understanding. Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. We've lost that in Christianity to a certain extent. The idea, I mean, a lot of times when it's offering time, the only thing we think about is financial blessing. We never think about sowing the offering to break the power of sin. We always think about sowing the offering to release a financial blessing. And that's true. It, uh, there is a financial blessing. But if you have issues, do you have that t-shirt, I have issues? <laughs> that you can't get past? Once in a while, take your offering, and instead of sowing it for a financial blessing... Sow it for a spiritual breakthrough over this thing that keeps dogging me and my family. A sin offering. That's kind of been lost in, in Christianity. You know, oftentimes preachers say, Before Jesus, the whole world was in sin and was going to bust hell wide open. No. Before Jesus... There was a temple, a tabernacle, and God's ordained system for how to break the power of sin. The only problem was it was temporary. It had to keep getting more and more lambs. All the lambs were raised in Bethlehem. All the temple lambs for sacrifice were raised in Bethlehem. Where was Jesus born? Connect the dot. The Passover Lamb of God, born in Bethlehem. 
is right where tens of thousands of lambs were being raised for temple sacrifice. Spotless, blameless. So when the the shepherds were given a sign, they kind of understood. They were there. They were temple shepherds. They knew what was going on. OMG. This good tidings of great joy that will be for all men is that a Messiah is being born right here where all these Passover lambs are being born. Wow. But here's the thing. Old Testament, New Testament, First Covenant, Second Covenant. The forgiveness of sins, whether it was physically slaughtering a lamb or by faith, receiving what Jesus had done on the cross by faith, it always has had to and has to include repentance. There has to be a heartfelt desire to change. God, I'm really sorry about this. We've lost the God, I'm really sorry about this. Because no one wants to be really sorry about it. I kind of like that feeling. No, that's why you take one step forward and ten steps back. Because you're doing it mechanically. No one here is doing it mechanically. Those other people are doing it mechanically. You don't, but if they don't have this heartfelt, sincere desire, it, it just doesn't work. You don't get the benefits of the power of the gospel. There has to be a time where we feel humble. We feel thankful. There's a sense of appreciation. (laughs) My sins really are forgiven. The Lord is really restoring me, redeeming me, and helping me rise above human nature. Into divine nature. And this is what the Lord means when He says, like in Proverbs 21.3, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Well, I put a hundred bucks in the offering. What more do you want? I want it all. It's no longer I that liveth, but Christ that liveth in me. That's Jesus in our hearts, changing us, transforming us, helping us to become more like Him. Hosea 6.6 I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. It wasn't that you couldn't do the burnt offerings, but would you please bring your offering with a little humility, a little gratefulness, a little recognition that uh, as a sinner, the wages of sin is death. Passover's coming. In the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 5, go over there. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Indeed, Christ is our Passover who was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. New Testament. Therefore, let us keep the feast. What feast? The feast of Passover. Keep the feast of Passover. But not with old leaven. 
Not legalistically. I did it, you owe me. God, I did this, you owe me. I kept the rules, you owe me. Pay up. Not with old leaven. Nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So here Paul's explaining Passover, keep the feast, but do it with a good heart, with good intentions. Sincerity. Truth. So the big takeaway when you study Leviticus, the sacrificial offerings, is that when you give your offering financially now, or when you're praying about things to overcome, it's because you want God to transform you into a new creation with His divine nature. Now, you don't have to do this today, but you might do it today when you sow your offering. Maybe you sow your offering uh, a, a tithe or a special offering to Israel. You, can, you could have this kind of thing going on today or w- whenever the Holy Spirit leads you. Amen. Father God, I'm slaughtering the animal side of my life today as I sow this offering. Every sinful habit, every family curse, everything that the devil has tried to do in my life and in my family, I sow this offering to break its power. And ad lib from there. That's different than I'm sowing this to get a hundredfold return. We want that too. But you got to have an understanding there's more going on in the gospel when we do offerings than just receiving a financial blessing. Sometimes it's receiving a miracle breakthrough that you can't get any other way. Praise God. And let me emphasize, I'm skipping through my notes. When, you get, when I'm doing my notes, I keep writing and writing and writing and writing. And then on Sunday morning, I usually get up about 5, 5.30, and then I go back through my notes, and I f- have to figure out what to take out. <laughs> How do I get seven pages of notes down to four? <laughs> oh, man. We're having a series. And I, I want to reemphasize this. God, in the Old Testament and now in the New Testament, God never regarded animal sacrifices in and of themselves as capable of removing the sin and the guilt. I mean the guilt and the stain of sin. It wasn't just, I did it. There had to be something on the inside of a person that genuinely and sincerely felt sorry. Today, we genuinely and sincerely feel sorry. God, I let you down. I let my family down. I let this or that slip. I made a mistake. I missed the mark. Forgive me, Lord. And that 
We don't want to miss that part. Repentance, prayer, offerings are preconditions for forgiveness, redemption, and atonement. If you don't have that, you got legalism, which is what we were talking about earlier. That's what Jesus came to redeem us from. A religious tradition that's just filled with man-made doctrines and legalism. Going through the motions of religion. I encourage all of us to watch a little bit of the passion as we approach Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, formerly known as Easter. Because that, and, and there's other great movies too, but seeing what Jesus went through is probably the, the closest thing we'll ever come to to a near-death experience. This is what Jesus went through so that I could be free and forgiven? That would motivate us and inspire us to live a, a little bit better, more godly, moral life. Amen? What a reminder. It could have been me. It should have been me. And so that ought to, just that thought ought to put a smile on our face and and put some gratitude in our attitude. Instead of judgment, instead of the wrath of God, instead of the wages of sin is death, I get forgiveness, I get redemption. I get the love of God, I get restoration in my life, I get eternal life and abundant life. It didn't happen because God needs an offering. All of this happened because I need salvation and deliverance and forgiveness and breakthrough. So amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a sinful wretch like me. Well, I don't know about you, but I had one foot in hell and the other one on an oil slick. And I was going down for the last time. And suddenly I heard the message of Jesus Christ, uh, uh, Savior and Redeemer, Deliverer. He would forgive me of every sin. He would break the power of every curse. He would connect me to a destiny that is eternal. I said, I'm in! Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. So we could go on and on. I've got three more pages here I had to edit. (laughs) Maybe we'll get to them this time next year. But anyways, hopefully that brought some enlightenment and some inspiration, some information that will bless you and help you keep on keeping on. Amen. All right, say amen. Love you. God bless you on Zoom. Have a great morning standing with Israel.